Well, family, uh, today the message that God put on my heart is called the Upside Down Kingdom. And I really want to speak this morning on the power of expecting the unexpected. Because we can plan our ways, but the Lord, he's a, he's a tricky one. Jehovah sneaky, I'm telling you. He can do things in his own way and, and however he delights. And we want to be obedient and we want to be in fellowship and intimacy with him so that we know every step of the way. Well, let's pray, ask a blessing on the word, and I'm going to dive right in. Father, thank you so much. I'm just so grateful for my new family here, Lord, and thank you for the opportunity and the freedoms we have in this country to be under this roof, this house of God, in a corporate place of worship, where each, each and every one of us are bringing our hearts, bringing our, our, our mind and our will and our emotions to come together to side-by-side -side worship you. And now as we have set aside the time to open the scriptures and to allow you to speak to us, I know there's things you have put on my heart this morning, Lord, but I really wish that you would speak to your children individually. We all had different weeks this past week. We all have different experiences, different prayer needs, and, and different things we are seeking you for. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be moving in and through these chairs, up and down the aisles, speaking to the hearts of your children tonight. So we thank you, Father. Go before us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, one of my favorite preachers is Joyce Meyer. She's just a fantastic preacher and, I mean, 40 years of incredible ministry uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And she shared a story years ago. I was at a conference in San Diego, and she shared a story that has stuck with me all these years. And it was that of a young businessman who continued to fail. It seems like every time he would start a new venture, it would fail. And he was losing money. He was getting in trouble. He, he had no idea what he was going to do to fix the problem. And so one day he's in a park and he's sitting on a park bench and he's just kind of thinking and praying and not sure what to do. Well, a couple minutes later, this little old gentleman comes over to him and he asks, hey, what's going on? What's, what's on your heart? Why do you look so blue? And, and he told him and the guy says, well, I want to help you out. And he pulls out a checkbook, writes some things down hands this guy a check for $100,000. The guy looks at the check and signed on the line is John Rockefeller. And he goes, oh my Lord. And John says to him, he goes, so a year from today, I want you to come back and report how the Lord has used you. I want you to report how this blessed you. And I want to hear all the good success. Goes, of course, of course. So he goes right to work. But because this check was so heavy, such a large gift, he was too afraid to cash it. So he says, I'm just going to go to work, and, and if I need it, I'll use it. If I don't need it, I, I won't. And, and miraculously, his business became a success. It was a booming success. So a year later, to the day, he goes back to that same park bench, and he sits down. He's got the check in his pocket, and he's so excited. He's so ready to tell the report. And then we see this nurse pushing this little old man, a familiar face, in a wheelchair. And he comes up to, to the guy. He's like, Mr. Rockefeller, you're never going to believe it. My business is a success, and here's the check. I never even spent it. And the guy just kind of looks at him and goes, huh? And the nurse says, oh, honey, pay him no mind. He thinks he's John Rockefeller. He's not. I hope he didn't give you a check. <laughs> the guy was just out of his mind. And, and, and so this young man found success in an unexpected way through an unexpected person who was unexpectedly not the guy he said he was. <laughs> and in the kingdom of God, he's going to call us to do things. 
And we as human beings automatically want to start formulating what that looks like and imagining, and when God puts something in our heart, we can already say how it's going to look. But the problem is we can imagine things to be predictable and comfortable. Believers are so comforted by the predictable. And that's why I saw something, a report, I'm not sure if it's true, but the people who really struggle with panic or anxiety, that they'll watch the same shows over and over again, the same movies over and over again, because they can predict when they're going to laugh, when they're going to cry, they know what to expect, and they can control their emotions. Well, believers, we like to be so comfortable. We'll do things that the Lord puts on our hearts, but there's a certain threshold that we won't cross of being uncomfortable or taking a risk or the potential of looking stupid in front of people. And so we, we comfort ourselves with this predictability. And friends, we cannot live predictable lives. We have a supernatural God who can do anything and make all things possible. And so I want, I want to encourage us this morning to be okay with mystery. Mystery is not a bad thing. Mystery is not a bad thing. Jesus himself was so mysterious while he was on planet Earth. Now, if I was Jesus, praise God I'm not, but if I was Jesus and I came to Earth and I was given 33 years to change the world, to bring salvation to every lost soul, I would try to make my preaching, my miracles, as crystal clear to understand as possible. As a preacher, as a communicator, whatever the Lord puts on my heart, I want to share it in a way where you understand it. You get it. The light bulb goes on. So if I was Jesus, I would try to make it as clear as possible. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He preached in parables, riddles almost. He would do random things like, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And then he says, for those who have ears, let them hear. And he would walk away. So in, in essence, he was saying, uh, here's something difficult to understand. If you get it, you get it. All right. And he moves on. It's like he made it difficult for people to understand the truths of the kingdom and the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, it always struck me, why would he do that? And I've come to the understanding that God does not hide things from us. He hides things for us. Because as we're about to celebrate an Easter, many of us will be doing Easter egg hunts. And when, you're, when your little babies are one years old, two years old, when you hide an Easter egg, you put it right here, visible. And, and they find it that easy. But as they get older, you got to get a little more tricky, a little bit more tricky so that they have to work a little bit harder. I made it a little too hard on my son because, you know, sometimes we were finding uh, Easter eggs still in like October and December because <laughs> I hit them a little too well. Thank God I didn't put any food in it. But as a father, hiding things and watching the discovery is a delight to me. And there's scripture that talks about it is the light of kings to discover a matter. There's a joy that comes in mystery. And mystery in itself should not produce misery in your life. Mystery should foster intimacy. You see, the reason Jesus would make it difficult to understand that even some of his disciples were like, did y'all get this? No, me too. Okay, just smile and nod. Smile and nod. I don't understand what he's saying. He made it so difficult that even his disciples struggled with it. But he did that so that only the hungry would press in, that only those who wanted deeper revelation would get closer to him. And that's God's goal all, all the while. 
was to get you to try to get away from your own self-reliance and get you closer in intimacy to him because intimacy brings clarity. And don't we all want peace and clarity? I'm telling you, we can only find that in a place of worship and face-to-face with our loving God. So we live in a tension. We live in a tension that says, I can plan my way. I have been created in the image of God. God is the creator of the universe. He spoke and it was, and he created the planets and everything that's in it. So we are made in his image. So we are are made to, to imagine, to dream, to have vision, to even create. We're the only species on planet Earth that creates futures. You don't see a baboon or, or a giraffe thinking about, I want to be an artist. <laughs> you know, Only human beings who have the very nature of God can dream to see things as, as we, we fit. And here's an example. You can close your eyes or you can leave your eyes open, but I want you to imagine a pink elephant. Can y'all see a pink elephant? Some of your pink elephants are cartoony. Some of them are a little tiny and they're inside. Some of them are really big and they're outside. Every time I imagine a pink elephant, in my imagination, it's wearing a striped tie. Uh, go figure. I don't know, right? But here's the thing. I don't know if you knew this or not, but pink elephants don't exist. They don't exist. They're not real, okay? Even though the Bible says that unicorns are real, the King James Version, there's the, the word unicorn is actually in there. So you can believe on unicorns, but pink elephants don't exist, But you and I, because we're made in the image and the nature of God, we can imagine something that doesn't exist. So imagine what happens in the kingdom of God when he has called you to a certain thing that you can imagine things that do not yet exist. Ministries that haven't been birthed, dreams that haven't been accomplished. We can imagine things that nobody's ever seen or heard before. New instruments that have never been designed. We have the power of that because we're made in God's image. But again, the tension is that God is in charge and we are not. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says that man, his mind will plan his ways, but the Lord directs his step. And I know that all of us have been there at one point or another. We hear clearly from God to go and do something and we set out to do it. And then he says, I didn't want you to do it that way. But God, that's how I had it set up in my mind. That's how I dreamed it. That's how I imagined it. I know, but I want you to do it this way. I want you to go to this country you never thought that you would go to. I want you to actually stand up in front of people and preach the gospel. I want you to go on a street corner and witness to the homeless. Oh, well, I just thought I would sit in church and and learn about the Bible, and now I've called you to more. So we live in this tension that God calls us forth, and that sometimes we will actually hear God tell us something that we completely did not expect. And again, I want us to expect the unexpected. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, Jesus coming in riding on a donkey was something very unexpected. And so this morning, I want to read, again from the New American Standard, from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, nine verses of a very famous story we have probably heard since we were in kids' church. But as I was reading it and studying it and praying over it this week, God showed me something in connection to modern-day church and evangelism that is in connection with what happened 2,000 years ago. So again, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It'll be on the screens, and uh, I'll be reading it to you, but follow along in your Bible or your mobile device. It says, When they had approached Jerusalem and have come to Bethphage, I actually looked up how to say that, Bethphage, that's how you say it in the Greek. 
you know, and, and being uh, part Hispanic, sometimes I cheat as a preacher and I just say the Greek words in Spanish and it sounds good enough, you know, <laughs> people are wowed by it. <laughs> but actually in the Greek, Beth Phage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, that's so incredibly important. This was the easiest little, little command that Jesus gave. Go get me a donkey. If Jesus were here today, he would tell us, can you call me an Uber? We're going to go right into Jerusalem. And the disciples could have said, go get a donkey. You're coming in as a triumphant king. Don't you want a horse, a stallion, or something good, but a donkey? But they didn't argue. They went. And what they did, they prepared the vehicle to bring in the Messianic king into Jerusalem for the start of Holy Week that would completely and radically change history forever. One simple command. So when God gives you a little nudge on your heart, are you saying, I'll get around to it? Are you saying, I'll consider it, I'll pray about it, which is the Christian way of saying, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I'll pray about it, right? But when God gives you a simple command, you don't know how pregnant that command is. You don't know how impactful that little command could be. So I love that we see the simplicity of the disciples following a small advice. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, and the fowl of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Uh, Branches, in other gospels, it says palm branches. And a palm tree and a palm branch was a symbol in the Bible of victory over your enemies. So when we cry out Hosanna and we wave the, the palm branches, we're saying, thank you, Jesus, that you have triumphed over the enemy that you have had complete victory over the enemy. You destroyed the works of the devil. You rendered the devil powerless, that you came so that we could have hope and freedom and never again be tormented. We're not on our way to hell. We're on our way to heaven. So it's a, it's a very powerful statement. And then in verse 9, we'll conclude with this. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, I'm going to give you a different perspective on Hosanna. And I pray that it doesn't uh, kill your, your joy of, of what Palm Sunday is, because I'm going to get a little preachy right now, okay? So give me some grace. I'm going to get a little preachy, but I'm going to bring it back and be all comforting, right? So Hosanna, we see a bunch of Jews living their normal lifestyle. Then the Roman Empire is conquering the world, And now the Roman Empire comes into Jerusalem and Israel and starts putting their policies and their government in place. So the people of God are not able to carry out their normal lifestyle. They're under oppression. They're they're now under Caesar, who is not a God-fearing person. There's horrible things that are happening. You have legalism. You have the Pharisees. You have uh, false uh, humility. Just a lot of evil is going on. Not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. Amen, church? (laughs) We're still seeing that. And so the Jews are expecting the Messiah. Then they get wind of this miracle-working Jesus. And now we're entering Holy Week, and he's stepping into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. And they cry out, Hosanna 
basically saying what, what Hosanna means in the Greek is save us now. Now, the, the Jews weren't trying to say save us in the sense of salvation. They were crying out, save us from the Romans. They wanted Jesus to come on this giant white horse with the sword and with this anger and with this aggression that says, I'm going to wipe out the Roman Empire so that the Jews can go back to their happy Jewish lifestyle. So I was praying about that and studying that this week, and I said, wow, does that look just like 2021? Because what if, what if the term we love so much, revival, is the modern-day term for Hosanna? What do I mean by that? I mean, we are crying out today for revival. We have an evil government. We have oppression in our land. We have our freedom of speech at stake. We have all kinds of crazy evil laws being put into motion. We have a church that is in decline. We have people who go to church but don't really live it out, don't express their faith. We're in the same situation as those Jews were back in the first century. And what we're doing is we're not saying Hosanna. We're saying, Jesus, bring revival. Let revival sweep our land. Get rid of the evil government. Get rid of these evil laws. Let everybody come to salvation so that I can go back to my comfortable, normal Christian lifestyle. So Hosanna should have been like, praise you, Jesus, that you are saving me. But they used it differently. They used Hosanna as get rid of our problems so we can be comfortable. And I pray that the church of Jesus today would not say we want revival so that we can be comfortable. We want revival because we want to see a revival that will sweep our land and bring the lost to salvation. And we can see the power of God completely overwhelm this, this nation and this country and this world. Amen. See, there's, a, there's going to be a great end times revival. And I know it's coming. I know God's going to do it. But just as, as Ron shared this morning on the microphone, we got to be ready. And I pray that your revival is not to bring just simple comfort to you individually. I pray that you contend for a revival, a proper revival, that brings reformation. Amen. See, a true revival is not just a stadium filled with people or a church that's completely packed out or a series of events throughout the week, and they call it uh, revival. It's a week of revival because that's originally how it started. You know, the old school farmers during harvest time, they were very busy in the field. They couldn't come to church. And so when harvest was over, they would have a week-long celebration, and they would call it a revival to revive you from probably a hard heart that you had while you were away from church for so long. It was to revive you. And revival is meant to turn something that was once dead back to life, to revive it. But I don't believe that the church of Jesus is dead today. I just believe there's a lot of people who are afraid. Lazy, yeah. selfish, you know, uncomfortable. And if God's people would say, I'm put on planet Earth to bring about a reformation in this nation, and a reformation is a complete change in which you can't go back. The Great Reformation, when the Bible was finally printed in 1500, people could read the scriptures for themselves and they discovered, wow, salvation is through grace alone, not through works. And there was a massive revival of the grace of Jesus Christ and a reformation, and we have never gone back since. And that's what I'm declaring for, a proper revival, where we see the power of God moving. We see people fully understanding their salvation. We see the lost come to salvation. We, we see politicians turning to Jesus, and we put things in place that can never be reversed. That's a true revival in my sense. And so I believe that the enemy wants to block us from going towards this, this realm of reformation and revival. 
that Hosanna is still alive today, but the correct Hosanna is a reformation through revival. And there's some things that the enemy wants to stop us and, and, and kind of hinder us and paralyze us in the faith. And I want to see us not being paralyzed by these things. I want to see our church becoming a manifestation of these things. And so there are some notes in your bulletin, and I'll do my best to provide you notes every week. And uh, three things here that I believe the enemy is trying to attack, and three things I believe should be resurrected in the church and come to full fruition. Number one, the Southgate Fellowship should be a house of salvation. A house of salvation. Okay, you know, say a prayer, get saved, go to heaven. You get your fire insurance, you're not going to hell. Awesome. But do we know the depth of our salvation? There's some things that we have still not yet learned about our salvation, even though we've been a Christian for so long. It's kind of like uh, back in, in Thanksgiving, my family and I took a trip to southeast Georgia where my wife's uh, mom and dad live, and they got 40 acres out there. It's beautiful. We want to spend the week out there, but I'm the type of person that I want to get there because we drive. We have a Prius. Gas is very good. And I said, I want to I leave and get there in one day. So we did the entire 16-hour drive in one day. I gave my family permission to go pee and then get back in the car, and we got a schedule to keep. Let's go. We had snacks. We had everything that we needed. My wife had her, like, murder podcast mystery stuff going on. We were set to go. We were good. And so we're driving 16 hours. We left in the morning around 4 a.m., so we had a few hours of darkness, and then we went the whole day to where there were still a few hours of darkness before we got to her parents' house. And whenever we were in Georgia and it was dark, my wife asked me to keep the high beams on because we didn't want to see little Rudolph the reindeer jump in the middle of the road and crush our little Prius, okay? We don't have beautiful iron bars on our front bumper like a big truck. We have a little can. And so she wanted the high beams on. Amen. No problem. But me, even though I'm 37 years old, I was holding the high beams on because I never used the high beams. The only time I used the high beams, it's a flash, you know, and say, hey, go ahead, go ahead at nighttime. You go ahead, you merge, you, you go first in the stop, the stop sign intersection. So I was holding it down and my wrist was getting tired. And so I would let it go. And she's like, hey, why did you turn it off? I'm like, I just resting my, my wrist. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm holding the high beams when my wrist is getting tired. And she goes, flick it out. I'm like, what? And she says, flick it out. And I'm, I'm used to, you know, pulling the thing in so the windshield wiper cleaners go on. I'm used to the turn signal. I don't use cruise control. I don't use all that fancy stuff. I just drive. And so I said, flick it. And so I flicked it out and it stayed still. So you got to be kidding me. I'm 37 years old and I'm now discovering that this is how cars work. Like what else about this Prius, this spaceship that I don't know about? So in the same way that there's so much probably about our cars and technology that we have no clue about, our salvation goes so much further than just forgiveness of our sins. See, the Greek word for salvation is sozo or soterio, and it means forgiveness, healing, deliverance, prosperity, and sometimes even more. So if all you are doing is walking in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and not your healing, not your deliverance, not your prosperity, not your joy, not your peace, you're barely tapping in an eighth, a fourth of your salvation. And if we who are mature Christians are barely tapping into that, imagine the lost. 
And so when I say I want to be a house of salvation, I want to be a house of salvation that comes to the full understanding of our identity, our royalty, our destiny, our, our authority that Jesus has given to us. There's so much more to learn. Even if you are the most seasoned and mature Christian, there are so many things we can explore and take a risk on. So I want to be a house of salvation that, yes, the lost come to know Jesus, but those who are saved can go even deeper into this great gift that Jesus has given to us that we will celebrate next week on Easter. The second thing is to be a house of training, a house of training, equipping. Ephesians 4 talks about the the purpose of the church is to equip the saints. See, the devil has no problem with you going to church. He's got no problem with you reading the Bible. The demons know the Bible. They can quote the scriptures to you. He has no problem with you knowing that. He has a problem with you changing. He's got a problem with you growing. And so what he wants to do is like, yeah, keep coming and being comfortable in church and, and learning about Jesus. That's all great, but then you won't actually apply it into your real world. But the second we start getting trained, those who are prophets and evangelists and, and, and teachers and pastors and apostles and all that, those who start learning their giftings and learning their authority and learn how to walk in the power of the Spirit and operate in the gifts of the Spirit, ooh, now we got a problem. And the enemy wants to quench that and stop that. And I want to encourage that. I got a, a real good, you know, little idea of, of really ticking off the devil. <laughs> I really like frustrating him and training people into their calling. And I would love to see Southgate become a place where real training can happen, whether that's a Wednesday night ministry school, whether that's working and partnering and walking life together so we can see your gifts come to fruition. And I remember my wife said uh, not too long ago, we were talking about the fivefold ministry and being Pentecostal. We want to see fivefold really alive in the church. And what does that look like? And it dawned on me that as a leader, I want to see, and this is kind of what, what I dream about, is seeing people who don't know Jesus come to accept them as Savior, then they come to the church, then they get healed up, then prophets can call out what is in their heart and what God has called them to be and draw that out, move all the dirt out of the way and pull out the gold that is inside and show it to them. And then the apostles, which means sent ones, can position them into ministry. That's my dream. And then my wife put those two things together and said, wow, it's really the evangelists to go out into the street ministries and street churches and outside of other places and bring the lost to salvation. Then it's the pastor's job, and I'm not the only pastor in the room. It's the pastor's job to minister and get the people healed of their past wounds and show them their identity. And it's the teacher's job to train them and to give them all the tools necessary. Isn't it amazing that when you actually get trained in something, how much of your fear goes away? Have you ever started a new job and you're like, I have no idea what to do, but you get a little bit of training and all of a sudden you're a professional. Same in the kingdom of God. I'm afraid to witness to the lost. I'm afraid to lay hands on the sick. I'm afraid to prophesy what God dropped in my heart. But when you get a little bit of training, that fear goes out the window and you step into your calling. So the teachers help equip you. But then we, we get the prophets who, who pull out what God has destined you to be and say, this is what I believe the Lord is saying to you. Come on, go after it. And then the apostles are like, all right, you've been saved. You understand your salvation. You know your gifting. You've been prophesied over. Here's the opportunity. And that's called assimilation. That's called getting somebody in the front door, getting them saved and trained up and getting them to be missionaries out in the marketplace. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. But the devil would want nothing more than for us to keep coming to church on Sunday and doing nothing. But imagine when it's not just one person or one worship team that's doing the work. Imagine when the, the church equips the saints and real ministry starts happening. Some incredible, powerful things can take place. And the last thing 
We'll have a house of salvation, a house of training, and then finally a house of miracles. A house of miracles. Ooh, we are Foursquare. We are Pentecostal. We don't believe that the signs and wonders and miracles disappeared in the first, year, first century with the apostles. No, we want to see. I want to see freaky miracles happen in this room. I want to see miracles that make it on the news. Like, can you believe what happened in that little church over there in Duncanville? I want to see freaky miracles happen. And I remember being in a, an Assemblies of God church years ago. Uh, next to us, we had a mega church, about this mega church of about 14,000 people. And I can't tell you how many times that Baptist church sent the demon possessed to our little Assemblies of God church. Like, all right, you're freaking out. Um, those Holy Spirit fire-breathing weirdos down there know what to do with you. And they would send it, and we would take care of it. We'd cast those demons out. We would speak identity. I can't tell you how many times. There was even a time when their, their head facility maintenance guy was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and he had no idea what to do. One of their staff members called me, a pastor on staff, to come over to the Baptist church in his office and lay hands on him, believing for healing. He got, he got healed. The cancer went away. But see, something happens when miracles, not only, yeah, God could do it, but we expect God to do it. See, miracles are powerful. Miracles are supposed to point us to Jesus. Signs and wonders. They're signs that make you wonder. They are signs that point you somewhere, right? You don't go to when we have our yard sale in a couple of weeks. You're not going to go out to the street corner and see the sign that says church yard sale. And you go up to the sign and say, wow, what an amazing yard sale. No, the sign points you to the yard sale. The sign is supposed to take you somewhere. So when we see signs and wonders and miracles take place in this room, it's not to say, yeah, yes, look at how powerful we are. It's to point somebody who's had a broken heart, a person who has rejected Jesus, a critic who says, I hated God, but this loving father would touch me this way, supernaturally, and a heart begins to open. I'm telling you, a miracle can shut the mouths of a thousand critics. A miracle can soften the hardest heart that rejected and hated God if we will so believe and take a step of faith, pointing to Jesus. It's all about broadening the perspective and changing what we have been doing on a day-to-day basis. And I'll close with this. I remember a story I read in a business book, of all things. It's called The Seven uh, Habits of Highly Effective Leaders or something like that. And in the middle of that book, uh, this uh, author, I believe Stephen Covey, he was on a subway in New York. He's sitting on a subway. It's late at night. It's probably 9, 10 o'clock at night. And he's heading home from some speaking engagement. And a dad walks in the subway, and he's got about three kids with him. The dad sits down, stares out the window, and he's kind of just lost in his thoughts. And these kids act like they just had a couple snicker bars and are bouncing off of the walls. And all these people have a long day of work, they're tired, and these kids are everywhere, uncontrolled, and their dad is just looking out the window. Everybody starts looking to this guy, Steve, and he's like, why are y'all looking at me? Like, all right, well, I guess I have to say something, and gets up. He goes over to the dad, he's like, sir, excuse me, kind of wakes the guy up, and he says, look, um, we've all had long days, and uh, sorry, you know, but is there any way that you can control your kids? You know, they're bouncing out the walls. They're, you know, going into that lady's purse, and, you know, they're just uncontrolled. And he, he, he kind of snaps out of it and goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, we just came from the hospital. My wife just died. I have no idea what to do, and I guess they don't. And he goes, no, 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 don't say anything else. Don't say anything else. You just go ahead and, and you grieve. 
And now all of a sudden, everybody in the subway, a uh, little old lady started pulling out candy from the purse. And, and another guy let, let the kids look at a movie on his cell phone. And they took care of the kids to let the dad grieve. Now, isn't it amazing that nothing changed in that subway, but everything changed? The situation and the circumstance was still there. The grieving was still real. But because of a matter of perspective, there was compassion. There was service. There was love manifested. And that's what I'm trying to get at here today, that revival shouldn't just be uh, spectacular. It should be supernatural. To where even if the situation remains the same, even if you're in the middle of chaos, even if your circumstances are horrible, in the middle of all that, because of divine perspective, you can have peace and strength and confidence to go forward in what God has called you to do. This week, we launch into Holy Week. This week, we're launching into celebrating and being grateful for what Jesus did to set us free from our sins, to remove the separation of the Father, to instill identity and authority so that we can expand the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And he's given us the tools. He has blessed us with all that we need so that we won't be afraid. We won't be doubtful. We won't back down from the challenges, but we can go forward in confidence and see the great things of God. And at the end of our lives, we can go to heaven and face Jesus face to face. He can say, well done, but we can be so grateful that we partner with him and saw him do the miraculous. Let's pray, family. So Father, I just thank you so much for your goodness and I thank you for your love. We thank you, God, as we launch into this new week, all the great things that you want to do. We thank you, Father, that you want to bless us, that you want to reveal yourself to us, that you want to give us dreams, that you want to give us assignments. And I pray, Father, that for these incredible saints in this room, that we will be able to manifest our dreams and the desires and the plans that you have given to us for so many years. But God, I also pray that you would use us as catalyst of revival. Father, that you would use us to bring the lost to be saved and healed and delivered and prosperous. Thank you, Father, that you have great dreams and plans for Southgate Fellowship. Thank you that you want to use us despite our, our faults and our failures. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you for all that you want to do. Let this week be tremendously filled with worship and experiences in your presence like never before. Let us enjoy Holy Week leading up to Easter. Let us continually be thankful for all that you've done. We bless your holy name in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. amen.